Thank you, gentlemen. That was beautiful, and thank you for the choir and all those that took part already tonight. What a blessing. Music has been a tremendous blessing. Pastor was talking about your nap. I didn't turn around to see how many of you got a nap, but it sounds like many of you did. Uh, you know, we, we solve all our, our problems today with apps. You know, there's an app for this, app for that. And uh, if you have a question, you have a problem, you just, you just find the app, right? And I saw a lady recently, she had a shirt, and it said, there's a nap for that. I thought, now that, I like that, you know, there's a nap for that. So uh, I like uh, when we get a little bit weary, get a little bit tired, and run down, there's a nap for that. And uh, great to see you tonight, and glad that you're in God's house. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah chapter 20 tonight. We're just going to read one verse as our text, and then we'll look at several others in and around that verse in just a moment. But Jeremiah chapter 20, and we'll start on verse number 9. Jeremiah is speaking, and in verse 9 of Jeremiah 20, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. No matter how hard man works at it, this world will never be a perfect place. Now man works really hard at trying to create a utopia trying to create a place where we can live, enjoy life, raise our families, have our needs met, pursue happiness, all those things that to man are important. And, 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 and everybody works to that end, to try to make this world a great place. But the world will never be a perfect place. Now, it once was. When God created the heavens and the earth, he goes through those six days of creation and makes all of these things. And on the sixth day, the Bible says God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. When God finished the creation, it was perfect. It was the perfect place for Adam and Eve to live there in that Garden of Eden. But we keep reading, and in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the serpent said unto the woman, Hath God said ye shall not eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden? And the woman said, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shalt thou touch it, lest ye die. You see, back in Genesis chapter 2, after God had placed man in that garden of Eden, he said, Of all the trees in the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it. The day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, now in chapter 3, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Adam and Eve disobeyed the direct command of God. They sinned. And when they sinned, their fellowship with God was broken. And as a result, God comes in the latter part of chapter 3, 
And he says to Adam and Eve, because thou hast eaten of the fruit of the tree, which I commanded thee, saying, thou shouldest not eat, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. And you and I know tonight that all of the disease and all of the devastation and all of the division and all of the destruction of this world are a result of sin. A result of that curse that God placed upon the earth because of man's sin. And I don't know about you, but when I look around at the world tonight, and I look at all of the devastation and all of the problems and all of the chaos and all of the uncertainty, it's kind of discouraging. I mean, if you've lived a while in America, you realize that we're not the country we once were. It just seems like things are coming apart at the seams. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 1, Paul says, This know also in the last days, perilous times shall come. That word perilous means unraveled. Well, boy, if there's a, if there's a word that describes our nation, our world tonight, it's unraveling. It just seems like the governments are unraveling, the, the, econo the economy is unraveling, the morals of people are unraveling, religion is unraveling, the family's unraveling. It just seems like everything, everywhere we look, there's unraveling. And it just seems like, is this ever going to recover? Is this ever going to come back to normal, as we might think? It, it kind of reminds me, when I was in college... There was hardly a day that someone did not come to chapel when I was in college. And they would tell us as students back then, the United States of America will never exist to its 200th birthday. Uh, there, there were a lot of theories in those days that the United States would never make it to July 4th, 1976. We were on a course of destruction. We were on a course that was leading us away from God. And, and by the way, there were a lot of reasons why people thought that. I, I did not go to kindergarten. I, I was raised, born and raised in Watertown, Wisconsin. Watertown, Wisconsin is the home of America's first kindergarten. I don't know if you knew that or not, but the first kindergarten ever taught was in Watertown, Wisconsin in 1848. If you go to Watertown, uh, there is a building right behind the Octagon House. The Octagon House is a historical monument there. It's an eight-sided house. And right behind the Octagon House is a little frame building. And that's where the first kindergarten was taught in the United States, 1848. But when I went to school, they didn't have kindergarten. I'm older than you think. Uh, but I went to public school. And, and in first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, Every morning, we would walk into the classroom, the bell would ring, and there was a speaker up in the corner of the classroom. And as soon as the, the bell would ring, the principal of our school would come across that speaker. His voice would come across that speaker, and he'd say, good morning, boys and girls. I hope you're all seated at your desk, because I want to read to you a verse out of the Bible. And he'd read a verse out of the Bible. And then he'd say, now, boys and girls, I want all of you to fold your hands on your desk, bow your head, close your eyes, because I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to give us a good day. And he would pray. That's how every day started in first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade in the public school where I went. 
Now, in fifth grade, I went to the same school. The speaker was still in the corner of the classroom, but it was only used for announcements. Because in 1962 and then in 1963, prayer and Bible reading were taken out of the public schools. And a lot of people thought that that was a watershed moment in our history. That when we took the Bible and prayer to God away from our children, that that was going to spell disaster. And of course, right on the heels of that came the rock music culture into America. I remember in sixth grade, all the girls, one Monday morning, they had names written on their tennis shoes. My name was on their tennis shoe, John, along with Ringo and Paul. And, and I thought, man, these girls like me. And then I realized I had missed the Ed Sullivan show on Sunday night because I went to church. But on the Ed Sullivan show on Sunday night, the Beatles from England had appeared and they had introduced this new rock music to America. And that began a culture in America that was anti-God and anti-authority. And following the rock music culture came the sexual revolution. And then the riots. Remember the riots in Watts, Los Angeles and Kent State University over in Ohio. And destruction and burning of buildings and burning of cars. And, and, and then on the heels of that came inflation. It's probably a new word to you, but inflation. Oh, man, the inflation in the early 70s was amazing. The first car I bought and got a loan for, I paid 18.5% interest on that car loan. My payments were $48.84 a month. And I, it was a 1972 Datsun. It only ran when it felt like it. But I, I, I got a loan for that car, and I had to pay 18.5% interest. My wife and I, we bought our first home in LaPorte, Indiana. We paid $26,000 for our first home. It was probably the nicest home we've lived in. Not the largest, but it was probably the nicest home we've ever lived in. A beautiful little Cape Cod uh, uh, house on Weller Avenue in LaPorte, Indiana. $26,000. I took out a loan, and my interest was 10.5%. My payments were $173.57 a month. I remember the first month I wrote that check, 173.57. I put it in the mail to the bank, and then I got out my amortization schedule because I wanted to see how much equity I had in my house. I had 17 cents. <laughs> Everything else went to interest. I said, I am on my way. I own 17 cents of this house. I mean, to tell you, inflation, it was amazing. You remember the, the gas shortages of the 70s? There were no gas stations open on Saturday or Sunday. I don't even remember that. I was in evangelism in those days, just starting out, pulling a trailer. And, there, and we would hold meetings Sunday to Friday. And then we'd drive the next meeting. There were no gas stations open on Saturday or Sunday. So I had two tanks on my truck, 20 gallons each. So I had 40 gallons of gas. I had five five-gallon gas tanks, uh, cans, in the back of my truck full of gas. I had two propane tanks, 30 pounds each, 60 pounds of propane. If we would have been hit on the highway, we would have ended the world. I mean, we were a moving bomb. But that's how you had to operate in those days. And I remember uh, thinking, as I'd look at those long gas lines, especially on Friday, they'd be parked all the way down the street. And I think, surely people are going to come to the Lord now. I mean, they're going to they're gonna turn to the Lord. And instead, they were shooting each other in the line to move up a car. 
Amazing days. And you know, Jeremiah is in those kinds of days. And I want us to look at Jeremiah tonight because what we need to do, whether it's in Jeremiah's day, whether it was back in the 70s and late 60s, or whether it's today in the 2022 range, we need to set our affection on things above, not on the things of the earth. We've got to to get our eyes off of all the chaos, all of the uncertainty, all of the things that we don't understand. And we've got to look unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Because thou keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon thee, because he trusteth in thee. So let's look at Jeremiah, because I believe there are some observations we can make from Jeremiah's life that can help us tonight to get our eyes and keep our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ in these unique, unraveling days. Notice, first of all, a universal collapse. Now, when we get to Jeremiah chapter 20, Jeremiah is not a young man. Jeremiah has been around the block a few times, as we would say. This is not his first rodeo, we might say. Jeremiah is a little bit older at this point. In fact, Jeremiah was alive during the reign of King Josiah. Do you remember Josiah? He was the king who became king at eight years of age. And it wasn't an easy time to become king. His father, Amnon, and his grandfather, Manasseh, had ruled for 57 years prior to Josiah. And those two kings, his father and his grandfather, had taken the nation of Israel away from the God of heaven and led the nation into all kinds of idolatrous worship. There there were groves and images and carved works all over the land, and people were worshiping all of these false gods, and the God of heaven was completely being ignored. So here comes Josiah, this boy king, and he takes the throne, and the Bible says in 2 Chronicles 34, in the eighth year of his reign while he was yet young. So as a 16-year-old boy, the Bible says he turned his heart to the God of David, his father. So he turns his back on his human heritage of his father Amnon and his grandfather Manasseh, and he puts his eyes upon his spiritual heritage through David. And he begins to call the nation back to God. Josiah realizes we've got to worship. We've got to worship God. We've got to come back to the house of God. Well, the temple, the house of God, was in shambles. It hasn't been used for six decades. So it's a mess. Nobody's even opened the door for 60-some years. So Josiah takes some money out of the treasury, and he gives it to some workmen, and they are commanded to go and repair and amend the house of God. So they go in there and they start the process of of remodeling and getting the house of God ready for worship. And as they were remodeling the, the place of worship, they found a book. But they didn't know what it was. So they took it to Shaphan, the scribe. And when Shaphan read the book, he recognized it was the law of God. It was the Old Testament law. So he takes it to Josiah and he reads the law to the king. And when King Josiah heard the word of God read, he rent his clothes, which was symbolic of humility before God. And he said, this is why we're in trouble. This is why the nation is a mess. We've forsaken God. We've neglected his word. 
So he calls all the nation together, the men, the women, the young, the old, the children, the old, everybody. He, he brings them all together, and they stood while they read the word of God. When the word of God had been read, Josiah stands up and he said, Now, ladies and gentlemen, what you just heard read is the way I'm going to live. And what you've just heard read is the way I'm going to lead. And if you agree with that, I want you to stand to it. In other words, make a decision to stand with me on this. And the people stood to it. And for 31 years, the nation of Israel experiences one of the greatest revivals on record in the Bible. Jeremiah lives through all that. But Jeremiah also lives long enough to see Josiah come off the throne. And he's replaced by Jehoiakim, and then Jehoiada, and then Zedekiah. And those next three kings took the nation of Israel right back into idolatry. And Jeremiah, throughout this book of Jeremiah, the whole book is Jeremiah calling out to the people, Stop! Wait a minute! We've already gone down this road. We've already been this direction. This is not the way to go. This is not going to lead us to righteousness. This is not going to lead us to God. We've got to come back. And so in the entire book of Jeremiah, he's crying out to the nation to come back to God. In chapter 2, he says, Thy own wickedness shall correct thee. Thy own backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is a wicked thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God and his word is not in thee. In chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, break up your fallow ground. Take away the foreskins off your hearts. You've become desensitized. You've become hardened to the things of God. You've got to come back to him. In chapter 4, verse 22, he says, my people are foolish. They have no knowledge. They are sottish children. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. Was that kind of remind you of today? Wise to do evil, but to do good, we have no knowledge. America's gotten really good at corruption. And even better at covering it up. But you go on the street today and ask people what John 3.16 is, they go, what? We're wise to do evil. But to do good, we have no knowledge. And so in chapter 7, Jeremiah calls out to them, amend your ways and your doings. In chapter 8, he appeals to the, to the, to the leadership of the land. And he says, uh, the wise men are ashamed. They're dismayed and taken. Lo, they've rejected the word of the Lord and what wisdom is in them. And by the time he gets to chapter 9 and verse 1, he says, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah is watching his nation go down, 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 down into destruction. And by the time he gets to chapter 13, he says, we've gone too far. We've pushed the envelope. In verse 19, he predicts, he prophesies the Babylonian captivity. He says in verse 9, the cities of the south shall be shut up and none shall open them. They shall be wholly carried away. In fact, if you look up at verse 15 of chapter 19, just in front of our chapter here, chapter 20, look at verse 15 of chapter 19. 
Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'll bring upon this city and upon all her towns all the evil that I've pronounced against it, because they have hardened their necks that they might not hear my words. He's predicting here the fall, the collapse. In fact, look at verse 4. Thus saith the Lord, chapter 20, Behold, I will make thee a terror to thyself and to all thy friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and their eye, thine eyes shall behold it. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them away captive into Babylon, and shall slay them with the sword. He's predicting a universal collapse. It gets real specific in verse 5. I will deliver all the strength of this city. All of your military might, all of your military muscle, your defense systems that you think are in place to protect you. No, they're gone. He goes on in verse 5. And all the labors are up. Your job, you don't have it anymore. You don't have a source of income. He goes on. And all the precious things are up. All your culture, your refinement, your arts, your theater, your sports. Oh, it's gone. And all the treasures of the kings of Judah, your, your, your federal reserve, your, your 401k, your, your retirement account, that, that's all gone. This is a universal collapse. And none of this surprises Jeremiah. He's been predicting it. For 20 chapters, he's been saying, stop, think, consider what you're doing. We have a history of this. We've turned from God before, and it's only led to trouble. It's only led to destruction. And now we're going down this same path again. Stop, repent, come back. So when the people give the deaf ear, Jeremiah is not surprised. That now the captivity is upon them. It is a universal collapse. But what does surprise Jeremiah is secondly, an unrelenting criticism. You see, Jeremiah is not surprised about the universal collapse. What he's surprised about is the fact that he's about to get blamed for it. Does that sound familiar? It seems like all of the problems in America, everybody wants to blame on those who are living righteous. Those deplorable conservatives. Those people who actually go to church. We need to do something about these people. Jeremiah is in this spot where, where he wonders, why, why am I getting blamed for this? In fact, look at verse 1 of chapter 20. It says, now Pashur the son of Emer, the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pashur smote Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. So in verse 1, we hear of this man Pashur, who is described as a priest. We know that Jeremiah is a prophet. Now, in the Old Testament, I think all of us would agree that these were two different offices, they were two different roles, if you please. These priests and prophets had different responsibilities under God as they were placed in those positions. But when I read the Old Testament about the priests and the prophets, 
I think if I were building a flow chart, I think the priests and the prophets would be on the same line. Yes, they had different responsibilities. It might be like two vice presidents in a corporation who would handle different parts of the organization, but would be sort of equal in their line of authority. For example, in the Old Testament, when God wanted to speak to the nation, he often spoke through a priest or a prophet. They didn't have the Bible yet. They didn't have a complete canon of scripture. So when God wanted to give them a message, he often spoke through the prophets or through a priest, sometimes through a king. But primarily those two offices were the voice piece of God. So I believe if you were building a flow chart of the nation Israel under God, you would have these two offices kind of at the same spot. So now here's this priest who hears the message of Jeremiah, this doom and gloom message that he's preaching about the coming captivity, and he's, he doesn't like it. So he, he takes Jeremiah, and according to verse 2, he, he smites him with a rock. He smites him, and, and the idea of the smiting there means to smite with the hand or, or with an object. So there is, there is physical abuse here. Then he puts Jeremiah in stocks. He puts his feet in stocks, and he places them at the high gate of Benjamin. The high gate of Benjamin was the entry and exit point in and out of the city. So now all the people can come by and laugh at this defrocked prophet. They, they, can, they can make fun of him. They can deride him. By the way, none of this is legal. There were false prophets in the Old Testament. There were those who prophesied a message that was not true or according to God's word. When that happened, they were to take that message to the high priest. He would review the message. He would call a council of priests. They would review the message. And if the message was deemed to be contrary to the word of God, that priest was removed from his office. That was the protocol in the Old Testament for someone being a false prophet. But none of that's being followed here. This is one man in power who decides, I'm stopping you. And Jeremiah doesn't understand this. He's totally floored by this. I mean, all he's been doing is preaching, thus saith the Lord. He's been faithful to God. And now he is being blamed for this coming destruction. Look at verse 7. He says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me, and a derision daily. He says, God, you lied to me. You deceived me. You told me to go preach the message of the coming captivity. But you didn't tell me. You didn't, it's not in my job description. It's not part of my, my uh, agreement here with you that, that I'm the one that's going to get punished for this. God, this isn't fair. This isn't right. So God, if that's the way you treat your servants, I'm out. Verse 9, we read it. Then I said, I'll not make mention of him nor speak any more his name. 
Jeremiah says, this, this is wrong. This is, this is not right. I'm being mistreated. I'm not being represented properly. I'm not being respected. Uh, uh, they're rejecting my message, and they're blaming me for the message. And, and so, God, you didn't tell me this was going to happen, and, and so you deceived me. I, 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 don't want any, I don't want any part of it. Jeremiah just quit. You see, Jeremiah could not take his Bible like we can tonight and go to the New Testament and read the words of Paul where he said, Yea, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That hadn't been written yet. He, he couldn't go to the, the words of, of, of Peter where he said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that shall try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rather rejoice. Jeremiah didn't have the words of Jesus, where he said, If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. And Jeremiah didn't have that assurance from the Bible. He didn't have those verses of, of promise. So Jeremiah is frustrated. Jeremiah is ready to quit. He doesn't want any part of serving God anymore. And the devil thinks, the devil thinks that if he can bring enough pressure on God's people, if he can provide a little persecution to God's people, he can stop the work of God. The, the devil loves it when churches are empty and closed down. The church, the devil loves it when churches decide not to have Sunday night church. And a lot of them are. He loves that. He, he loves it when the parking lot's empty. He loves it when the seats are, are, are vacant. He, he loves it when the pulpits are silent. And the devil thinks that if he can bring enough pressure to us, we're going to cave. We're going to give up. We're, we're going to quit. But I want you to see thirdly tonight, not only the universal collapse, the unrelenting criticism, but notice thirdly, an underlying condition. Now, there's a term we became familiar with a couple of years ago, an underlying condition. Look at verse nine carefully with me. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name, period. Now, I don't know how much time elapses between that period and the next word. Maybe it was a few seconds. Maybe it was several minutes. Maybe it was a couple hours. I honestly think it was several days. I believe when Jeremiah put that period there, he put the writing instrument down. He rolled the scroll together and tied it. He pushed his chair back from the desk, walked out the door with no intention of ever going back. You say, Brother Gash, how do you come to that conclusion? Because the rest of the verse. Look at it. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name, period. 
But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. There came a point after Jeremiah quit that he became weary with quitting. Now, you don't get weary of anything after a couple of seconds. You don't get weary after a few minutes. You get weary after days and days and days and days. And Jeremiah, I believe, walked out of that room. He's done. I am out. I am finished. There's my resignation, God. This isn't fair. This isn't right. I did what you said. I got blamed for it. So I'm out of here. But somewhere down the road, that fire that was burning inside of him said, you can't quit. And Jeremiah said, I I became weary with forbearing. I had to go back in that room. I had to open that scroll. I had to pick up that writing instrument. There was another chapter to write in the history of God's people. And ladies and gentlemen, if you are saved tonight, if you are a child of God tonight, you have someone living inside of you called the Holy Spirit who took up residence there when you got saved. And that Holy Spirit promises you that greater is he that's in you than he that's in this world. And friend, you and I, no matter what the pressure is, no matter what the persecution may be that comes, we cannot quit. We've got to go to church. We've got to read the Bible. We must pray. We must have revival meetings. We must send kids to camp. We've got to have vacation Bible school. We've got to keep reaching the lost. Why? Because there's another chapter to write. It is not over. You see, the devil has a bad memory. The devil thought one day, when they sealed that tomb outside of Jerusalem and set the Roman guard, the devil thought, Now the message is stopped. But he forgot that behind that sealed stone was the very one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. The devil thought when they drugged the apostle Paul outside the city and left him for dead. Boy, the devil, he he clapped his hands and he said, now we'll hear this babbler no more. Now we've stopped the message of Christ. But all of a sudden that body began to move and Paul stood up and shook the dust off. And he said later in 1 Corinthians 9, yea, though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. Yea, necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel of Jesus Christ. One day they took their bony fingers and they put them in the face of Peter and John. And they said, you will never speak the name Jesus Christ again. You got it? Peter said, we could not but speak the things that we had both seen and heard. You see, Amos the prophet said, the lion hath roared. Who can but fear? The Lord hath spoken. Who can but prophesy? Friends, we can't quit. We can't stop. 
doing the things of God. We have to keep going. Why? Because we have a power in us that's greater than any circumstance, greater than any confusion, greater than any chaos, greater than any uncertainty. We have the Holy Spirit of God on our side. I remember July 4th, 1976. It was a Sunday. I started a revival meeting that morning in El Paso, Texas. They had a little room, much like you do, at the church where I was staying. I went in for Sunday school, good crowded gathered, taught the lesson, had a good time. Folks seemed ready for the meeting, ready for the week. Morning service, a great crowd. Place was nearly packed. Good service, good invitation. Several responded. That afternoon went by quickly and went back in for the evening service. And again, a good crowd. Not a full house by any means, but a good crowd and a great spirit. and Just an anticipation of the week, I believed. I had freedom to preach. Again, a good response. But my heart was heavy because I literally thought, this is it. I don't know how it's going to happen, but America's going to get obliterated by midnight tonight. I don't know if there's a missile on the way from Russia or something. I don't know. But we're not living till midnight. We're not going to make it as a nation. We're not going to see our 200th birthday. When that service ended that night, people went home. I went back to that room. I changed my clothes. I was just so burdened, so discouraged. And I decided to take a walk, and I began to walk the streets of El Paso. Now, El Paso is a very long city east to west. It's not very wide north to south. But east to west, it skirts along our uh, border with Mexico, the great city of Juarez, just over the border. It's three million people now over there in Juarez. Huge city. And El Paso is a long city. Not quite as long in those days, but today, I timed it the other day when I drove through there. It takes uh, 50 minutes at the speed limit to cross El Paso. It's a long city. And I just started walking. And I was young. I, I, I didn't really know how to pray. I, I, I don't know that I know how to pray now, but I sure didn't know then. And I just, I said, Lord, we don't deserve another day. We deserve to be destroyed. We've gotten so far from you. You see, whether you're taught this or not today, America is a Christian nation. I know that's not said anymore. Certainly not taught in our schools. But we are a Christian nation. The phrase, in God we trust, we didn't, we didn't come up with that a decade ago and stamp it on our currency. The phrase, in God we trust, was emblazoned in the sails of the Mayflower. The Mayflower never would have landed in America had it not been for William Brewster. William Brewster was on the Mayflower. He was a preacher. And of all things he brought with him on that trip was a printing press. Why would anybody bring a printing press on a journey to America? Because William Brewster came to America to preach the gospel, to print Bibles, 
halfway across the Atlantic, the main beam of the main sail cracked. And that ship was going down. But they took the giant screw out of that printing press, put it in that main stay of that beam, and the Mayflower made it to America, all because of a preacher who came here for the right reason. America's a Christian nation. 93 references to God and the Bible in the Constitution and bylaws of the, US, of the United States. 93. When I was a boy, I got a job when I was 10 years old taking care of a cemetery three miles from our farm. The River Road Cemetery. I used to mow the grass, dig the graves. I dug my grandfather's grave when I was 10 years old. That cemetery. My parents are, my dad's buried there. My mom will be buried there. I may be buried there. Who knows? River Road Cemetery. And I used to spend a lot of time in that cemetery, mowing grass, digging graves. Did you know that in America, we dig graves east to west? Now, a lot of things are changing in America because of cremation and stacking graves and so on, because we're running out of room. But in America, graves are laid east to west. And when you dig a grave, you have to be there when they lower the casket into the grave as the guy at the cemetery. You have to make sure it's done right. And the head of the person in the casket is always to be at the west end of the grave. That's just American tradition. Why? Because the Lord's coming back and he's coming out of the east. He's coming out of the eastern sky. So when we rise in the rapture, we rise to meet him. You don't want to back into the rapture. The Lord might think you're leaving and shut the door. So, so when we come out of that grave, we rise to meet him in the air. See, all that's a part of our American fiber that nobody talks about anymore. But we are a, a Christian nation. It's everywhere. And I remember that night saying, Lord, we've turned our back on all this. And, and we deserve your judgment. And I just, I, 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 I poured my heart out to God. And I said, but God, I'm just starting out. I'm just a young guy. I I'd like to hold some revivals. I'd like to preach some meetings. My wife and I, we'd like to have some children. We'd like to see if maybe we could raise them for you. Lord, could you give us more time? I didn't know what I was praying. I didn't know how to pray it. I just poured out my heart to God. And I walked and I prayed. I walked and I prayed. And I walked and I prayed. And I looked at my watch. And it was 12.05. It was July 5th. We made it. We're still here, I think. And then I thought, yeah, but I'm on central time. Maybe God's on mountain time. I better keep praying. <laughs> One o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock. At five o'clock, I, I, I walked back into that parking lot of that church as the sun was just coming over the eastern horizon on El Paso. And God spoke to me. Now, God has never spoken to me in an audible voice. I've never heard God's voice audibly. But you know what I mean when he, I say he spoke to me in my heart. And this is what he said, and I leave it with you tonight. God said, son, you just be faithful with every day I give you and let me take care of the schedule. Did you know God has the schedule? In fact, he's the only one that has it. Even the son doesn't know when he's coming back. The angels don't know. Only the father. He's got the schedule. The, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. God's got all this. 
Our responsibility is to be faithful. By the way, you can go home tonight or tomorrow, whatever, read the rest of Jeremiah. You know what God told the people after they were taken into captivity? You know what he, you know what he told them when they got to Babylon? They, they were carried away. Horrible. You know what he told them when they got there? Build a house, plant a garden, get married, have some children, let your children get married. Read it. What was he saying? He's saying, just be faithful. Yeah, you're going to go through a really hard time. You're going to go through some real tough times here. But when you get there, just go ahead, build a house, plant a garden, get married, have some kids, give your sons and daughters a marriage. In other words, just be faithful because I'm going to bring you out. And he did. It wasn't the next day. It wasn't the next month. It wasn't the next year. But God brought his people out of captivity. You see, God's got the schedule. Our job, our privilege is to just be faithful. And may God find us faithful in days like these as Jeremiah was faithful in his day. Let's pray together. Father.